So, um, first of all, welcome to everybody to today's podcast. Um, and I'm going to start today's podcast with a couple of questions just to get your mind going. Um, what do Jane Fonda, Sigourney Weaver, Frank Sinatra and Dolph Lundgren all have in common? That's your question number one. Second question, what is the link between Bolton and Boston? And the third question, what does it take to build and take a small family business in the north of England and turn it into a multi-billion dollar global brand? So there are three questions that we're going to try and answer over the course of the next 20 minutes, half an hour or so. Um, and I wasn't sure about the answers of those questions myself until um, I actually got to read a book recently uh, which is a book called Shoemaker. And those of you who haven't read it, please go out to Amazon straight away and pick this up. It's the untold story of the brand that we all know and love, that is Reebok, uh, told with an incredible amount of honesty and candor by Reebok's founder, Joe Foster. Um, the story of Reebok itself is, is truly, truly fascinating. It's a story of, I think, adversity mixed with a, a healthy dose of luck in some instances. Um, but it's also a story of how you can turn every adversity into opportunity. And to paraphrase some words uh, that Joe used in the book, um, every obstacle, every challenge um, has provided a lesson, something that Joe could take away and use to his advantage in the future. Um, so first and foremost, I'd like to welcome Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok, onto our podcast today. So, Joe, thank you very much for joining us all the way from France. Well, thank you, James. Thank you for the introduction, too. It's, uh, it's good and it's very nice to meet you and nice to speak to everybody and tell about this story. And I'm very, very glad that you said a good dose of luck. <laughs> and people remember that, a good dose of luck. Yes. A good dose of luck. Well, we're going to hear about some of the luck that, that came your way. So let, 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 let's go back to, if you don't mind, the beginning of the story, because obviously that's always a good place to start. And let's go back to Bolton uh, in the beginning of the day. And it was your grandfather who, another Joe, in fact, the, all of your family, I believe, were called Joe, I think just about, um, who originally set up the, the business, <laughs> J.W. Foster's and Sons. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the, the initial start of, of the Reebok story from J.W. Foster's and beyond. Just, just to settle up on the Joe, <laughs> I am Joe, but really it's J.W. We're all J.W.'s. My brother was Jeff, but he was Jeffrey W., and my father was James W. My uncle was John W. And so you go on. But however, we, we, could, we, we can go back to 1895. And a very young Joe Foster, my grandfather, um, he came from himself a pair of spike running shoes. By trade, he was a cobbler. And he learned his cobbler, his cobbling, from his grandfather, his grandfather, if you can sort of go back even that far. And he used to visit his grandfather down in Nottinghamshire. And uh, his grandfather, again, a cobbler, not only repaired shoes, but he repaired sports shoes, in particular, cricket boots. And cricket boots in those days had spikes in the bottom or studs. And uh, we, we can assume that grandfather said mm, to his grandfather, why have these got studs in the bottom? You know, why is that? And the obvious answer was there. It gives cricketers grip. And he bowling, batting, or in the field, gives them grip. Well, Joe was a member of his local athletics club. In those days, it was called Bolton Primrose Harriers. I have no idea where the Primrose came from, but it was Bolton Primrose Harriers. And he wasn't a... He enjoyed running, but, you know, he was a good runner. Halfway down the field, usually, on most events when he, when he ran. I think he was a middle-distance runner. Um, but he thought, well, if I could put spikes in the bottom of my shoes when I'm running, maybe that'll give me grip. 
maybe things will go better. Because in those days, they used to run, if not on grass, it would be on the cinder tracks. So you, you, you were on a cinder track, of course, cinders were always moving around and whatever. So uh, he'd obviously gone back home and he took some time, but he made himself hand-sawn pair of, uh, of spike shoes. Well, I say hand-sawn, he actually hand-sawed one of the soles on, the other one he got so impatient he nailed it on. And I think that's the one that came off, if you've read the book, <laughs> he had some, some problem with that. However, he came a very unlikely second wearing his spike shoes. So his, uh, his teammates, his club uh, mates were sort of looking at him and he wasn't, a, he's not a big lad. <laughs> you know, maybe five, six, five, seven at the best and you know, the rest of them are fairly strapping. Um, so we wonder whether he was a bit bullied or, or whether they all said to Joe, please make us a pair of shoes. But I think in those days, otherwise possibly they'd call him a cheap. Anyway, he started making shoes, spike shoes. But uh, what he did pick up, which is something that today we all know about, and that's influencers. And way, way back then, back in 1895 up to 2000, by 2000 he had his own business, Jade with Foster and Sons, and he had the front of his building painted, and half of it was cobbling prices for repairing his shoes, and the other half was his making running shoes. And uh, by 1904, he had four, three world records in his shoes, because he, he gave a pair of shoes to Al Shrub, and Al Shrub was the, the local best runner, and in Glasgow, Ibrox Park, on a, it's a one-hour event, during that one-hour event, um, Elsha broke three world records. That's good. And even during that, the first decade of the 20th century, um, George supplied athletes and he had Olympic golds in that early. But of course, unfortunately for Joe, we had World War I. Uh, by that time, my father and uncle were even part of his business. But World War I more or less destroyed that particular decade as far as people wanting running shoes. So we come to the 1920s, and this was uh, this was Joe's belly pop. This is this was his his decade. <clears throat> we, we have um, uh, a letterhead, and we've replicated the letterhead. And on this letterhead, there are about I think it's 96 teams: football teams, rugby teams, and I don't think you can mention one that's not. I can mention one because I've searched this one, and it's Tottenham Hotspur. Otherwise, Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Chelsea, you name all, every football league team that you can mention, he was supplying them, direct. <clears throat> so he was making football boots and uh, training shoes. Now, uh, this is brilliant, but during the 20s, it was also, and it's on this letterhead, that he supplied all the Olympians at the Antwerp Games in 1920. Now, during, I think it was 1924, uh, we had Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. They both won gold medals. And 1928, I think it was Lord Burley. And those three are immortalised in the film Chariots of Fire. Mm. So, I mean, that makes him a, somewhat of a genius. And he was supplying all these people, you know, knowing that these people were influencing. But who were the influencers? Well, they were influencing other athletes. So he, he had a, his sales of bread. You know, throughout the empire in those days, so he was supplying to Australia, New Zealand, a lot to Africa, but he was also supplying America as well. And so, you know, in those, you can imagine, I mean, I had enough trouble, trouble getting to these countries in, in my time, but in those days, it was incredible that he should make such an impression. 
However, grandfather died in 1933, and I wasn't born until 1935. And uh, so, so happens that I was born on his birthday, the 18th of May. So 15 months after granddad died, I came along and well, grandmother was so full of this. She was a bit of a firebrand and she insisted he'd brought his name with him. That was it. So grandfather's Joe Foster. And that's how I got my name, Joseph William Foster, just after my grandfather. Okay, so I'm born four years before World War II. I don't know much about before World War II, very little in my memory, but World War II, no lights, you name it. We could see uh, the flames from Manchester when there were bombing raids, because Bolton was just slightly elevated. We could see that. So I have six years, you know, but I'm a kid. What's, what's different? This is what you expect. Everybody's at war. But, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you just learn what you learn. However, 10 years old, the war's over. And, uh, <clears throat> And at that point in, uh, in 1945, okay, all the lights come back on, things, things change. And that's great, you know, when you're a child, things change, that like, wow, fantastic. And so for the next uh, seven years, I have education, go to college. And at 17, I actually joined the J.W. Foster Company, which was grandfather's company, which now would be run by my uncle and father. So I joined that and I spent one year because at 18, off I go to do national service. But my brother, Jeff, he'd been, he joined the company four years old, earlier than I did. <clears throat> but in those days you could get deferment. So it so happened, we both went together to do national service. Jeff went to Germany and then he saw Adidas, Puma, <clears throat> saw what they were doing, different shoes, but running shoes. And uh, we, we come back two years later. And we come back to the factory. Well, you, you've been away. You know, before you go, well, this family life, you know, mother's doing your washing, she's making your meals, everything's there. <clears throat> you've got your local friends, everything's sort of on a plate for you. In national service, you've got to learn a bit of self-sufficiency, you know, and okay, how can I make the best of this? So you do learn to do a bit of dodging and weaving. And I, I spent 12 months of my two years playing badminton. I wasn't... I must have been reasonable otherwise, I don't have done that, but, <laughs> but I mean, so that was great fun. I'm, I'm off wherever, uh, even played badminton at Wimbledon, what do you believe, when we, when we won a cup. I went, okay. great. Well, Julie's, Julie's yeah. wanting to say Wembley, but I know it was Wimbledon. <laughs> I know it was Wimbledon. <laughs> Either's good, Wimbledon or Wimbley. <laughs> Yeah, we, we did run a cup. That's, um, it was great. In fact, our, uh, <clears throat> I think he was the sergeant in charge of our team, and he took us uh, back down into London there. And uh, we, we had some sort of meal somewhere and went to see a, a film. He took us to the film with uh, Marilyn Monroe. Going back a while, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're back about 1954. 54, 55, hey, but uh, so, so that was a great time in the area, but we come back, we come back to the factory and it didn't take long. We're looking at the factory and saying, what's going on? This, this, this is a failing company. You know, J.W. Foster's fantastic, you know, known the world over <clears throat> for, for their athletic shoes and it's failing. Well, what's the reason? The reason is that uh, Uncle Bill and father 
they were at each other's throats. They were feuding. And it does remind you of Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler, if you know that story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, they were the same, but <clears throat> Rudy went off and set up Puma, whereas Adi continued along with the Adidas uh, factory. But uh, we tried to persuade them, look, this, this is what's happening. You've got to change. You know, this, something's got to happen, otherwise this company will be dead. And all my father could say, well, look, when I'm gone and when Bill's gone, this company's yours. I said, good dad, look, we don't want you to go. No more. We don't want you to go, but this company will be gone long before you're gone because it's going nowhere now. We're losing business. You know we're losing business, but made no difference. Nothing. So Jeff and I, we, uh, we went to uh, college, to night school college, and we learned more about making shoes because we knew how to make what Foster's were making, which was spiked running shoes. But we needed to know about leather, about materials. And we knew that Adidas had changed things, they were doing things. So we needed to learn. We did. But more than just learning about football, we made a lot of contacts, a lot of friends, people in the business. So that when we did, when we did leave, when we moved six miles down the road to the next town, Berry. We, we went, which was near Brossendale Valley, where the college was, and that was the footwear-making uh, district of Lancashire. So, but, the, but that moment then, in essence, was in competition with your father, right? When you sort well, of... We, we decided not to be in competition. Right. We, yes, we're in the same business, in the same trade, but we decided to start with cycle shoes. Mm -hmm. Instead, Jeff was a keen cyclist. I mean, as I've told you before, I was badminton, so that's... You know, Badminton shoes, no, and those are Dunlop, and you know, a different type of shoe than we were making. Um, so, cycle shoes, we started off cycle shoes, and we had a local athlete who, uh, a local cyclist, in fact, and he asked if he could sell our shoes. So, we bag on his back and a few pairs of uh, shoes in, in his bag, and off he went for a 50 mile radius, and he used to call on uh, cycle shops because cycle shops were different than sports shops. And they were the ones that was all sad. So we were not, we were trying our best not to be in competition with the, with the family business. And we, we, we got a representative from London. He was actually a Scot who had moved down to London. And he must have been a brilliant salesman because his orders, the orders he, he sent in for cycle shoes was immense. And we had to employ people. <laughs> we were growing. How could we cope? And then, of course, we were also, because because Jeff was also involved in athletics. He, he liked running, I hated running, I couldn't do that. But he was a member of the local club. And uh, so people around used to come to the factory and we started making running shoes. We started to get into that business. Um, and we made a lot for schools as well. But all of a sudden our cycle shoe business just ended. We, we didn't know. And our, our, no more orders were coming in from our man in London. It took three weeks, and this, this, we were talking about communications earlier. This happened, it took three weeks for us to find out when his landlady had sent us a letter that he'd been killed in a road accident. And all our orders just finished, that was it. We never replaced them. We, for whatever reason, I mean, today, maybe some of the people who owned the cycle shops would have said, look, this is a good brand, why don't you represent them and give them, you know, brought somebody else in. However, that was the end of our, uh, our cycle shoe business, but we were really growing in, in athletics. And by that time, I decided to 
do the things that fosters should have been doing. Get on the road and start selling. Um, we had a couple of agents who were selling our shoes, but I got on the road and I'm visiting uh, sports stores. In those days, every town had about three small sports shops, mainly operated by an ex-footballer. And that's how they got their business. So um, I'm going around and I'm putting my, uh, my shoes on the counter and say, I'm Reebok. And uh, yes, so is that. Yeah. So I said, well, you know, for the Fosters, yeah, well, we're somewhat related. But, uh, uh, they, then I would say, well, <clears throat> look, I've got Adidas, I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Hmm. Why does he need Reebok? He didn't. He didn't need, I needed him, he didn't need me. Hmm. So that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. And it's like, right, he's not my customer. He's only an in-between. You know, at this point, I need to make him want. So we were selling directly to athletes locally. But then I decided we needed to expand on that. And again, very fortunately, the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, produced a handbook. And in this handbook, we have two, three hundred clubs, all listed, <clears throat> and the name and address of the secretary. It doesn't take much to figure out what you do. <clears throat> There's a lot of letters. And, uh, <laughs> in those days, it was a lot of letters. Uh, we didn't have computers, but we probably had the secretary would type these letters out, and off we go. I got about 150 agents, and I was giving them 15% off. Orders were rolling. Fantastic. And it did happen that a lot of the retailers would phone me up and say, look, can I, you know, you're selling your shoes direct to our athletics club. Look, yeah, I'm willing to stop your shoes if you stop selling to the athletic club. And I said, well, put this way. They only get 15% you get a wholesale price and I'm willing to push you and your name, but I'm not going to stop selling to the, uh, to the club. It's up to you. I think about 75, 80% of the retailers did come in and yes, okay. They figured. So we, we started to build a reputation. The reputation was that we were, we were the athletic shoe company. And nobody else was doing this. Adidas were Germany. Otherwise I'm sure Adidas would have been doing it as well, but we, we are in the UK. However, the, the running business is not a big business. We're nice, we could make a nice income, we had a nice couple of cars, but we were limited. We we're limited to what we could do. Export, <clears throat> yes, we could do a bit of export, but again, export is not the easiest thing to do because people have to want to export. I think somebody in Belgium, I got somebody in Belgium, and I had a, a guy in France, a little guy in France called Jean-Marc Gaucher. He's a friend. <laughs> Um, but really, I'm thinking well, Europe, yes, but Europe is 20 odd countries, um, all different languages, different cultures, very difficult to get in. And there was only one sport, really one sport that was big, and that was football. And Adidas had claimed that. Puma were doing a bit, but Adidas really had uh, claimed that one. And to get into football would have, would have cost me an awful lot of money that we didn't have. You know, we just didn't have. Um, but I mean, I mean, our problems, we have plenty of problems and we mentioned it, uh, but the first problem we have, when Jeff and I set our company up, we set it up as Mercury Sports Footwear. Mm. And Mercury Sports Footwear in 1958, uh, by 1960, our accountant said, you're making a bit of money, guys, you know, you're doing all right. Uh, you better register your name. <laughs> you know, we 
25, okay, and 11. What do you mean register the name? Because, you know, if we'd used J.W. Foster, we'd no need to register our name, although there would have been a bit of a fight because uh, that meant two companies the same. Oh, register, okay, we'll try and register the name then. So we applied to register the name and we found it was, we couldn't have it. It was pre-registered. This was probably our first blow. We, we liked the name Mercury and we were using the little winged messenger. Yep. He was our logo, right? So in fact, we, we do have some shoes in the archive to prove that. <laughs> and, but uh, right. So they came and said, you've got to go and see an agent. So I went off to Manchester to see the patent agent and I'm sitting down in his room and his windows open. Nice day in May it was. And uh, <clears throat> we're discussing that, yes, it's pre-registered and he'd found out that uh, they would sell it to us for a thousand pounds. Thousand pounds? We, we don't have a thousand pounds. This is very early in our life. Oh, well, he said, you have to bring me a, a different name. You have to bring about 10 names because we need to test these with the, uh, with the register. And he pointed through the window. He said, you want one like that? And that was Kodak. And I said, why, why Kodak? Was it? I said, well, it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's not like Mercury. Everybody knows Mercury. Kodak belongs to Kodak. You only think of one thing, Kodak. Okay, right. So we went back and uh, you know, we're sitting down. We come up with names like Cougar, Falcon, something aggressive, something like that. Um, but let me take you back to 1943. I am eight years old. I'm in the middle of a war. This is World War II, 43. And nobody's doing a great deal, but they did have athletics meetings just locally. And uh, so I'm entered into a 60-yard race and I win. I have a bit of an advantage because I've got Foster Spikes on. Well, brilliant. Hi, go up to collect my prize. What do I get? A dictionary. <laughs> a dictionary. I'm eight years old. Where are the toys, boys? You know, where's that football? Well, eight years old. A dictionary. And unbeknown to me at that time, it was an American dictionary. So what's the difference? Well, Oxford English spells colour with a U. Uh, an American dictionary, Webster's, <clears throat> the U's missing. So it's C-O-L-O-R. And there are many little things like that happening. So why would, why would they give me an American dictionary? Because it would give me the wrong spelling of everything anyway, or lots of things, wasn't it? You know, anyway, I was a bit disappointed, disgusted with having a dictionary. But then come forward now, we're back now, we're back into 1960, and I'm, I've got my dictionary, and I love the letter R. I thought, ah, oh, that's strong. Yeah. I think rain, rain made shoes for the Queen, so yeah, that's, that's a good letter. So I open up R and I'm flipping through pages. R E oh, R E E B O K. What's that? It's a small South African gazelle. A gazelle. Oh, fantastic. Speed. This is what we need. We're a gazelle. Put this at the top of my list. Off I go back to the uh, to the agent. Say, look, here's your ten names, but we want that one. We've got to be in love with this. It's got to be our passion. You know, this is what we do. As it happened. Reebok was the only one that came out that we could use. Oh, again, you know, a bit of luck, a bit of good fortune, nothing wrong with that. Reebok, the only one could use. That's a very similar, very similar story actually to, I was listening the other day to the, how they came up with the name for the Bay City Rollers, the band. Right. <laughs> it's exactly the same sort of concept, you know, sort of pin in, a, almost like a pin in a map type concept, yeah. which, is, which is great. What could have been though, right? What could have been? Well, absolutely what could have been. And, and yet the, uh, the registrar said, well, there's only one 
caveat on this one. And that is that uh, if somebody comes up and they're making shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Hmm. Oh, Jeff and I, we look at each other and we think, yeah, that'll never happen. <laughs> that's, that's impossible. That couldn't happen. So, so, so we registered Reebok, that was it. We're Reebok. However, 20 years later, uh, the registrar said, because of that, you're in the B part of the register. Oh, all right, okay. So uh, it's 20 years later when he came back and said, we've moved it from the B part of the register to the A part of the register. And why? He said, well, everybody now knows that Reebok is a shoe. It's a sports shoe. It, no longer the animal. You know, this is what people know it as. Brilliant. So yeah, so we, we did that. And, you know, and, and another event that happened four years into our business, we uh, got a letter from the Adidas uh, solicitors. Oh, yes. And, you know, it's like we had two, two, two stripes and a, and a T-bar. Adidas had three stripes. They considered our two stripes and a T-bar infringed their three stripes. Well, one, we weren't strong enough or big enough to, uh, to even challenge that. But, you know, it, didn't, it, it took about three or four minutes for us to think, Adidas, they know we're here. Mm. That, that's an acknowledgement. That is like, I did just know we're in the frame. Wow, brilliant. So we just changed the side stripe and we changed it to the, uh, to the vector, which we have now, which, which has proved very useful and very good and so different. <clears throat> so I mean, these were the challenges. And uh, you know, instead of sort of worrying, putting our head in our hands, I think we found them as more inspiring. It was more like, well, You've got to do more than just what you first think of. You've got to be able to think again, be able to go around something and, and, and challenge yourself. So those challenges, I think, were really important for us as we grew our company. But as I say, we, you know, we, we grew, we sort of sold shoes direct to athletes, got the company to a certain size. But I was thinking, America, that's the place. And it so happened, I'm reading a magazine and there's an advert there from, it's from the government, the Board of Trade, it was in those days. They wanted sports companies to export. Oh, you know. And what they suggested in this advert was they will pay for a stand at the NSGA show, which is the National Sporting Goods of America show in Chicago. Um, they'll pay for the stand, they'll provide you with the stand and they'll pay your return airfare. And on top of that, 50% of your hotel bills and you know, whatever meals you have. Well, it's almost cheaper than staying at home now. You know, why couldn't turn that down? So with a friend, Bob Brigham, Bob Brigham, it's Eldis Brigham now, Eldis Brigham Camping Shops, I don't know if you know them. They're few around the country. And Bob Brigham at the time, I was making a, a lightweight climbing boot for him. So that was, you know, come on. So Bob and I, we decided we'd go off. We first of all called into uh, New York, had a look at the, uh, he, he had a look at the outdoor stores. I had a look at the sports stores just to see oh, what goes on here. Then we went on to Chicago. It's cold in Chicago, February. February in Chicago is freezing, <laughs> it really is. However, we are at the show there and Bob sold a few pair of boots, which is good because it means that we had some business out of this as well. Um, but I didn't sell any shoes and People come and say, like your shoes, it's now, where would we get these shoes from? And I said, well, from England. And they say, is that New England? 
No, 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 not New England. It was in, oh, but that, that was a big off-put. And they were, most of them said, look, we'd love to try your shoes. So when, when they're available in, in the States, we'll buy them. Right. This is 1968. When, when can I get them available? When do I get a distributor? 1979. 11 years. Going back 11 years. I had six different attempts, six failures. Uh, I think three of which were in California, one of which was in Massachusetts, um, another one in uh, Minnesota. I, I, these people, and uh, for whatever reason, and I'm trying to work it out, why, why can't we do this? Well, money to finance this. You needed somebody who had a lot of money. Um, or did they? But you couldn't do it with, with the money we got. And, even these people, they had good stores, they had, they had good businesses. But it, it was then, again, it was against, it's the same thing that I, I met when I went to the retailers in the UK. Why, why do we need rebound? So you always trying to push. However, we're talking now, we're into the early 70s and I'm still going there. I'm running. Running became something big in America. It started off fairly small in the late 60s. But in the same it started to grow and became absolutely massive, became massive. Nike grew off the back of that business. Nike grew with running. But what created, what helped running was the magazine Runner's World. Mm -hmm. Runner's World in the, in the late sixties was just a single A4 sheet. By 1975, it was a full color, glossy magazine with all the results, all the reports. Bob Anderson, he, uh, he was the owner. And he got so full of this that uh, he, he told everybody the best shoe, which was the best shoe. And he, he came up with, uh, with this notion that he would, he, he would in, his, in, an, in a, was a shoe edition, which was, came out in August, he would, he would tell everybody which was the best shoe to buy. And, and I think on that first occasion, it was Nike type tailwind. Mm -hmm. Well, Phil Knight's importing these from Japan and it's Onitsuka who were now, uh, was Tiger then. Um, and do you think, you know, by the by 1970s, middle of 1970s, if you became number one shoe, a million people wanted to buy that shoe. A million, at least a million people. We're talking about 400 million people in America. And so many were doing running these days. So how, he couldn't. It was impossible to, to meet the demand that Bob Anderson had created by giving him the number one position. And so by the time a year has gone by, he's just about getting shoes in the, uh, to satisfy demand and the retail business, they're, they're tearing that out because everybody wants the shoe, nobody can get it. By the time they get there, Bob Anderson's ready for a next number one shoe. And it's not the same, <laughs> it's a different one. Oh, well, that, the retail trade were just absolutely going crazy about this. So after that, Either they persuaded him or he made a decision. I think somebody must have persuaded him. Look, do a five, do a star rating. So instead of doing a one, one, two, three, four of shoes, no, we'll, we'll do a star rate. So five star and four star three, fine, five star. That meant that three, four people would get five star shoes. So you get a, a flat shoes. That was it. I knew at that point that would be the hook. That, and I knew how to, I knew how to build a five star shoe.
<laughs> I knew exactly how to get that, apart from doing some advertising and going seeing Bob Anderson as well and being a bit persuasive. I knew how we, we would get a five-star shoe. So we built Aztec. It was part of the gold range. We were making this gold range. It was Aztec was a trainer. Um, Midas, Midas was a racing shoe and Inca was a spike. Yep. We tested these out in 1978 in, uh, uh, in Edmonton at the Commonwealth Games. Oh, we got a load of medals. Brilliant. Fantastic. <clears throat> so February, February 1979, I'm back again to the NSGA show. And we have our gold range. And along came Kmart. Kmart, a big wholesaling group. They want 25,000 pairs. Oh, well, I think we knew that if we get a five-star shoe, our little factory, because 25,000 pairs, that's about six months' work <laughs> for our factory. And I knew we needed help, but I had help because I meet a lot of people and a guy called Shackleton, Derek, nickname was Shack. Um, he said, we'll make them at Barter. He just, he just opened the sports division. We can make those for your job, right. <clears throat> but came out and said, yeah, but we want a better price. Oh, because we know everything was going to the Far East. So I had, I had an arrangement with a, a couple of guys. They actually worked out of London, but they represented uh, the factories in South Korea. So we got that covered because they, they could do it at less than half price. And the product was brilliant. So we knew where to go and what to do. But at that same, exit, same NSGA show, <clears throat> along came Paul Fireman. Paul Fireman. He, he is operating a wholesale business in Boston, Boston Camping. He's operating that with his brother and his brother-in-law. <clears throat> and I could see that Paul was a bit fed up with doing this. He'd been doing it for probably 10 years. I think it was a family business and it was like, they were going around the same circuit, you know, the, the same glass bowl. And you could see that he wanted to wear And he said, Joe, I'd love to be a distributor. Well, okay, Paul, yeah, but you know, we're gonna need a five-star shoe to get that. Paul, come on, come and look at this. Yeah, Aztec. He said, is that, going, is that a five-star five shoe? I said, it will be, will be in August. Oh, okay. So, but, you know, Joe, we have to have it now. You know, if I'm going to be now. I said, well, I can't give it you now. I can give it you in August. Yeah, we'll have to wait. Okay. But we kept in touch. And I, I, I went over to America to have words with Kmart. And uh, I also called in on Boston Camping. They were selling tents, fishing rods, you name it. And it's a nice little operation there in Boston. And Boston's a nice place to go to, so call in Boston. Anyway, we come to the, the last week in July, 1979. And these magazines are all, they always come out the week before the, the sort of month of issue. And I phoned Paul Feynman. I think I must have got him out of bed because he was a bit dozing and he thinks, yes, whatever. Paul said, get down to the local kiosk. The, the magazine will be out now. Just have a look what happened with Aztec. An hour later, he came back. Joe, Aztec, five stars. Oh, got it. That was it. We, we've cracked it. We're, we're in America. We knew then we got the demand, and that's what we needed. But he said, Joe, Midas and uh, Inca, they've both got five stars as well. <coughs> So we had three five-star shoes, fabulous. And that was, the, that was the big break. We'd got that, we were in. And uh, of course, 
We had problems. How do you finance that? Paul had a bit of money. Uh, that's okay. And when I when I went over to to America and picked up by Paul, and uh, we go down to his office. It's a different office. <clears throat> I said, "Well, where are we not at Boston Camping?" Oh, he said, "We've we've finished." <laughs> they closed the company. That was it. Because Paul said, um, "Joe's got five stars. I'm Reebok." <laughs> and one of the other guys went making wallets, and I think his uh, his, his brother-in-law owned the car lot. But Paul. You know, and I'm thinking, ah, I thought this might have been a bolt-on which would have helped finance the growth and whatever. No, Paul was out. So <clears throat> they'd obviously not been making too much money, but Paul was determined. The thing is, he was hungry and he wanted it. So uh, fortunately, Barta provided a credit line and a credit line meant he got 20,000 pairs of shoes because the, the orders were coming in, 20,000 pairs of shoes, and it, he hadn't paid for them. He had his own credit now, so he was trying to figure out how to pay that. But some of the shoes, they started falling apart. Barter, a big company, and they were making the shoes, but they also had a rubber plant, and they were making the sole, which was the sponge bit of the sole, which was EVA, and it was fairly new at that point. We'd been using it for probably 12 months, but Barter obviously hadn't developed anything in, in their plan. So the problem is they were under curing some of this and under curing it meant it just collapsed. I mean, the result of all this is that Paul never paid for those shoes. And uh, that probably helped him survive the first sort of 12 months. But then we had to go to Korea. We were going to Korea. Now with Korea, you've got to put the money up. Where do you get your money from? That became the first big question. And I went round with Paul to two or three different places with him in America. We went down, we went on the, the Empire State Building. And there's on something like the 20th floor, there's this, <clears throat> there's this company that uh, they, they do sourcing a product out of the Far East. And, uh, and that's a way of financing if you've got a sourcing company. And we met the guy, <clears throat> had a good conversation. He said, well, I love the idea, love your product. But he said, uh, Nike came to me couple of years ago, to, they, were, they were also seeking financing. And he said, <clears throat> look at it now, they're brilliant. He said, I didn't finance them. He said, I'm not going to finance you because if it fails, I'll be the one who failed. I, I, choose, I chose the wrong one. I, I often think of that and think, yeah, you <laughs> really lost out on both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you lost out on both. <clears throat> but... Uh, this didn't put us off, and Paul, through a friend of a friend, I think the Built Light Rubber Company, we were also in Boston, um, he knew uh, Stephen Rubin. Stephen Rubin is Pentland Industries, Pentland Industries, you probably know them these days, they own JD Sports. Yeah. They've got and uh, they had, come, one of them comes in Asco, doing exactly like the guy on them. He was sourcing product out of the Far East. And what he saw with Paul is, that Paul would go around to Sears Roebuck to all the big American uh, such retailers <clears throat> and would sell them own brand shoes so that, you know, you want to see a shoe, we can make it at this price. So that, that's what Stephen saw, <clears throat> Stephen Rubin. Paul wouldn't have anything of it. He said, no, we're Reebok. Okay, so he, he, gave, he, he gave Paul a credit line and that's all he needed. And, the shoes are flowing out great. 
he owed Stephen a lot of money at one point. I do, I do know that Stephen got a bit worried in those early days when, when he owed $20 million. And it's like, but Paul couldn't care less. No, 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 no. We're selling Reebok. <clears throat> However, that wasn't the big story for Reebok. We were in there. The big story came from a guy called uh, Arnold Martinez. Some people call him Angel. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he was our Angel. He's down in Los Angeles. He's a good athlete. In fact, I think he, he nearly made it to the Olympics. But uh, his wife, Frankie, is uh, coming home from these aerobic classes. And oh, she, she and her, her girlfriends, they were really full of this. Oh, this is fantastic. Wow. And I said, what are you doing? I said, aerobic classes. What's that? Well, it's, we're, we're actually exercising to music. You know, real good beat music. And it's fantastic. Oh, right. So I said, can I come down and have a look at this next time you go? Sure, come down. So he went down there. And what did he see? He saw the instructor up front in a pair of trainers. Half class in trainers, the other half, no shoes at all. But Arnold, that was like, well, this is an opportunity. Why don't we make these girls a nice glove leather shoe, which is so comfortable, and a nice sponge sole, specifically for women, which meant a different last, a narrow last, just for women. Oh, off he goes back up to Boston and has a meeting with Paul. Yeah, Paul, <clears throat> there's this new thing going on down in Los Angeles, these girls, fantastic. I'm sure it's going to be big. And Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no, we're doing great. We've got a nice running shoe business going here and it's growing and it's fantastic. Um, we, we have about 20 different reps and, and it was great. I mean, I once saw the reps all lined. They came, they came to an exhibition, all these vans lined up with Reebok. <laughs> fantastic. Absolutely. But uh, he said, Arnold's saying, but you know, it's really going to be big. And Paul is saying, Arnold, forget it. Let's, let's concentrate on what we're doing. You know, we're, we're doing really well. Arnold wasn't put off. He just went around to the back door to have a word with Steve Licker. And he sent Steve, Steve, get just a nice glove, white glove, leather, upper, nice cushion sole. <clears throat> get me 200 pairs. Steve made him 200 pairs. Got them down. Arnold gives them to the uh, instructors <clears throat> and some of the, uh, uh, the girls who were really good. And the rest is history. All of a sudden, the girls had a shoe of their own. This Reebok shoe. They knew Nike, they knew Adidas. They were male brands, sweaty. Now we've just got this nice, this beautiful shoe, this, oh, this and this Reebok, Reebok. We, we don't know them. Now, they're not runners, no, but Reebok, beautiful. And uh, they, they love them so much that, okay, they, they wore them during the aerobics, but then they would wear them on the street. They just went onto the street. The problem was it was made in glove leather. In glove leather, you could just tear it like a piece of paper. And after about six weeks were, these were falling apart. But the one big thing, again, we talk about being fortunate. We were, we were in America. We were in Los Angeles. The girls, they didn't care. Yeah. They, loved, they loved the shoes so much. <clears throat> they just went out and bought another pair. Well, this is a shoe that you've got Jane Fonda wearing. You've got Sybil Shepherd wearing it on the red carpet at the Emmys. I mean, it's, that, that's quite a fashion statement as much as it is anything else, right? Well, that's what happened. I mean, Jane Fonda, she bought a pair of shoes. She bought a pair of Reebok freestyles and she wore them during, in a video uh, 
plastic notes. She'd made videos and she wore these on the videos. And then, like you say, it's the going to Weaver uh, and these sort of things, they just, and Sybil Shepherd, uh, it just, all of a sudden, this was a woman's shoe. We became a woman's company. <laughs> and that was it. And yeah, we, we're talking about, after the first year, a $9 million company, which grew to $30 million in 12 months. And it grew to $90 million. And then to $300 million. And then to $900 million. You know, you, you're talking about a four-year growth. Okay, we, we had the money fixed because Speakman had come in and he was supplying the brand. And once this starts turning over, you know, it, it looks after itself. The finances then look after themselves. Um, but when you think you've got a turnover of 300 million and you go to 900 million, just short of 1 billion in 12 months, just over 12 months, you've got a problem. How do you do it? It's not the money. It's how do you get the product? How can you manage to get that much more product? Three times the product you've been having. Well, again, luck comes in here because at that time, Nike were really growing big. They just hit a wall and they had to pull out of about three factories in, in South Korea. And we just went in. And I mean, we would have been dead without that because I know that Paul Feynman, we, we talked about this and Paul said, look, Joe, I know how to stop it. I know how to stop this, but he said, if I do, I don't know how to start it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would have been a big problem. So we, we grow by the time, and I, I left the company at the end of 89 because we, we, by that time, had got to a $4 billion company. And, you know, there's a bunch of lawyers here. There's a bunch of accountants here and a whole lot of people in between doing design, doing packaging and selling. And I'd put on... After putting on America, I put on about 30 different countries around the world, uh, which meant I'm flying a lot. I'm doing a lot of flying and I'm building the distribution worldwide. And uh, it ended up with me 35,000 feet most of my life. And I'm landing in, in the next city. I'm being picked up by a limousine. I'm going to the best hotels and we're dining at the best restaurants. And we're also going to Monte Carlo. We have the Princess Grace. Uh, uh, memorial tournaments, the tennis tournaments, and we've got the whole of Hollywood coming in. Like you say, Frank Sinatra, um, we had Roger Moore. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we got them all, there's so many. John Forsyth, John Forsyth, I'm from Dynasty. Um, they were all there. Linda Evans, you know, <clears throat> every one of them. There were, there were so many, they, they were just enjoying life out there. And Roger Moore was there. In fact, my wife had a photograph taken between Roger Moore and Sean Connery. Which, <laughs> which she, she always enjoyed that moment. But we got that big, that uh, the challenge had gone. This, this was, you, know, you, you wonder what are you doing? We were supplying royalty. Um, uh, we were supplying Princess Diana and Harry and William we were supplying them you know, with shoes. So we'd done so much. And I decided, right, here we are. Time for me to get out of the company. You know, time to settle down. And it's a bit like the Eagles, though, and Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> <laughs> and so I checked out, but time and time again, I had to keep on going back. Yo, sure. what happened with this? How did this happen? You know, and so it's quite amazing. And really, I wrote the book at the end and settled down for quite some time. But there were so many stories of how did, how did Reebok begin? 
And so many people were telling the story that they didn't know. Yeah. You know, so much guesswork. So about time we just wrote the story. And uh, so that, that's how Shoemaker came about. And, I th- I th- and it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And, and hearing you recount it again, and it's, it's brilliant and it's fantastic and such incredibly fast growth. One of the things I always find fascinating about when you talk and, and about the book as well is that you, you often don't, it's, it's not really about winning, bizarrely enough, because you know, this, this whole thing is about winning races. Generally, that's what sports shoes are about. But for you, it doesn't really seem to be about winning the race or, or becoming out top. It was about, I think mean, you commented on the, in the book about just being able to be in the race with the big boys type of stuff. Was that, was that always a big incentive for you to look at other, the competition, the Adidas, the Nikes, whoever, and say, I just want to be up there with them to show them that I'm here and be recognised? Was that a big sort of driver for you rather than necessarily beating them? Well, I think that with Adidas and Nike, and you know, when I left in, in 1989, we were number one. We'd mm. overtaken Adidas, we'd overtaken Nike, and we were the number one sports, globally, the number one sports brand. Um, and I guess that was an achievement. But I think, like you're saying, it's more the taking part. It's more the, you know, we can make a shoot. We can do this. We, we can do something better. And, and of course, once, once we got in aerobics, it, 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 really, it really wasn't a matter. That pull thing was so big. We, we weren't looking for business. We were looking, how can we deal with the business? So the pull, and we'd achieved that on a couple of occasions to get a pull. And I think that's so important that if you can get people who want your product rather than trying to convince them they should have your product, mm. this was the difference. And for the last uh, five years, it was a matter of chasing the business. Yeah. That, it was really a matter of chasing. The business was taking us. We, we weren't determined where, where that business was. It was taking us. And it was good. I mean, people do say, you know, were you comparing things with, uh, with Nike or, or with Adidas? To be honest, they just sat back and said, aerobics. <laughs> That's just, well, just a fad. <laughs> which is wonderful. And I think if you asked the boy in, from Bolton back in the day, would you be famous for creating ladies aerobic shoes and, and having them on the red carpet, you probably said, what are you talking about? So yeah. the, um, w- w- one of the things that does come across a lot in your book, and, and there's a whole chapter towards the end about it actually, is about the people. Um, now, obviously, you know, we, I, I run the recruitment network, which is, you know, a community of recruitment businesses. We're all about people. That's it. It's about people in businesses, people we work with, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Just, just give me your sense around the importance of people. Because I mean, I mean, even down to the point where I think you, at one point you, you hired a minibus to, to actually take your staff to, to the factory in Bolton. That's what, 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 what were your lessons over the years about people? So I, I know you've made some mistakes with people as well, and probably in all due respect to those people, but you've made some mistakes on that journey as well. What, what are your life lessons around people when it run, comes to running a business? Well, I, I don't think you can run a business without people. I think they're so important. Uh, and I think it's important to get people who want to be there mm. rather than just want a job. And it, it, this started even from our small factory where people wanted to work for us. Yeah, we, we did have a bad time when we, our, our production, we had to cut production, even in our small factory because our distributor went out of business and that nearly took us. But all the people who worked for us and I, I had to lay off probably 50% of our staff. And some of them were saying, can we not work for nothing? Can we, you know, we just want to And others were saying, look, can we come back when, when you put things right? It took us about three months. We worked hard to get it right. And about three months, everybody was back working for us. But 
it, it was like a family. It, you know, when you're doing this, you've got to have a culture and people have to come into that culture. They have to be part of it. And, and if you can actually build a winning culture, then that's even better because everybody's stood up there. Everybody's ready for the next challenge and they're all ready to win. <clears throat> and I don't think we advertised a great deal for people. Certainly I didn't. I mean, America may have had to because the growth in America was incredible. <clears throat> but for me, it was a matter that uh, you attracted people. Reebok attracted people. I mean, the athletic shoe business was, was quite an attractive business. You can imagine Jane Fonda or Silver Jane. I mean, it's an attractive business, you know. <clears throat> and I guess we were lucky to be in an attractive business. We weren't just making nuts and bolts. You know, it's, it's nothing quite, uh, nothing like that at all. This, this had romance. And, and it attracted people into it who were enthusiastic about doing it. And, and I think for me, it's also a matter of making sure that you take people in who can do something better than you can. Mm. You know, it goes back to the, if you're, if you're the brightest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. <clears throat> so that sort of thing, you, you need people who can do something better and get on and then, then give it to them, let them own it. Yeah. yeah. Once they own it, they get proud of it. And, and I think to build a successful, I can only probably talk about a successful sports brand, <laughs> and, and that is you need to, people to believe and people to have ownership. And <clears throat> I mean, you must supply a lot of people to a lot of different uh, trades and um, services, but you, know, you can still get that enthusiasm. And I think the one, of the, one of the things you've got to be at the top is always enthusiastic, always full of it, mm. making sure that... Uh, People want to talk to you. People want to give things. You know, we had a problem in America when, uh, and I do know the two kind of guy, and everybody, their heads go below the desk. They don't want to, you know, when you're coming in, well, don't, don't talk, don't, you know, you don't see me. <laughs> you, yeah, the thing you don't want, the thing what you want is for you know, to be able to be there and put people that are happy, pleased to be working for the company. Yeah. And, and I think uh, there are dangers as you grow that that doesn't happen. But uh, for, me, yeah. for me, it was good. But, it, but, but it's, it's tough though, really. And, and I'm conscious that we're coming sort of close and rounding up soon. And, and, and I really, really do thank you for your time today. But one of the challenges, I suppose, that you've got, that you talk, some, some of the words that you use throughout the book is almost, not obsessive, it's probably a bit far-fetched, but you know, you, you definitely really immersed yourself in work. You know, sometimes, as you mentioned the book, to the jeopardy of your family and that sort of thing. But you, but you said that your life is all about momentum, growth, progress, success. You were, you know, from the day one, you were, you were all about that. Did you honestly think back in the day when you were starting out with Mercury and going into the, the beginning of Reebok, that it would be a multi-billion pound global business taking over the US, beating the Adidas and the Nikes on as well. Did you, behind the scenes, did you really believe that? I think that's a thing for your dreams. Yeah, I, I think you're allowed to dream that. Uh, but the reality is that what you face is the challenge of that day and the next day, and where do we take it? Um, the thought that you could become a number one in those early days, no. The, it was being in the race, right? Meaning, let's get in there, let's be part of it, <clears throat> to, to be number one. Um, and, and I think if you, if you probably think you can be number one, you probably take strides which are too big, or you can probably become disappointed. Yeah, you probably, because that dream, <clears throat> uh, that dream or even that thought that we can, I, I think you all think, we, wouldn't it be good, you know, 
it is a bit of a dream. Yeah, you can stand on a machine and, and daydream. It's like I used to go out running, and I'm not a runner. I don't like running, but I understand being fit. And I used to go. And sometimes you'd go out and you'd come back and think, oh, where did I go? I should have run. I can't remember. You can't remember where you've been because your mind is just somewhere else. You, th these are the daydreams. These are the thoughts. Sometimes they're inspiring thoughts you can get. And, uh, you know, for me, it wasn't really becoming number one. The achievement of getting to number one <clears throat> came out of the blue and it was fantastic. I think it was uh, sports goods intelligence that told us we were number one. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're number one. In fact, in sports goods intelligence, they used to call us numero uno. <clears throat> and uh, Nike were the e eager Beavertons because they were uh, in Oregon. I, I forget what they, what they called Adidas, but there were the three of us and uh, they used to report Numero Uno has done this. And <laughs> so uh, do, you, do you think you'd be a number one? <clears throat> I don't think it really entered my head that uh, that would be it. I think it was a fantastic challenge. How, how big can we, uh, can we grow? Because I, I think momentum is necessary. I think yeah. the minute that you stop growing, once, once your plateau is a dangerous area because that plateau can start to drop. So you need to keep on moving upwards. Yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree. And, and, I, and I think the, you know, for me, if I was to summarize the book, and, and again, anyone who's listening in today, you know, that is the book, Shoemaker, not Shoemaker, <laughs> Shoemaker. Uh, that is the book. Do go and get it. It's absolutely phenomenal reading. It's a really fascinating story when you get into the sort of the weeds and the, of the sort of all the things that happen. But the um, one of the things I love about the Reebok story, and that for me really summarizes, I think, your way of working and your, I think, business intelligence, if I could use that expression, is that you're, you're, you've been brilliant at product placements. Um, probably, I think, you know, almost when I compare it to a lot of other organizations, you know, you're almost like the forefather of product placement. It's absolutely superb, whether it be the, you know, the slam dunk contest, whether it be the red carpets, whether it be the tennis competitions in Monte Carlo, the Boston Marathon. You know, you've got your shoes in front of the people who need to be wearing them. That's created that movement and that environment. And I think from a brand point of view, I think that's absolutely genius and well ahead of its time. And obviously, product placement is big now. Um, and I love that about your story and how you've done that. Well, how did you come up with that as the concept? Well, I didn't come up with that. that that's been around for years that, that in the sports industry to, to really grow, to influence people. Mm. You, need, you need to have leaders, winners, whatever it is. You need to have that. One of the best and probably the cheapest uh, things that we did, <clears throat> I came up with Reebok Racing Club. And Reebok Racing Club, we had a nice vest. Uh, you could join the club because... Mostly athletes go to events as part of a team, part of your, your, your local uh, team. But with marathons, it, people didn't need to be part of a club or anything. So they could buy Reebok Racing Club. Now, we were sponsoring, by sponsoring, I mean, not the best of athletes, but just giving them product, giving them shoes. That, that, was, that was not it. I gave them all the Reebok Racing vests and said to the guys, you're entering marathons. I want you at the front of the marathon for as long as you can stay there. You're not going to win. We knew, they knew they were not going to win. But I don't want you just to think of a best time or whatever. I want you at the front. Here's your best. Here's, here's a new pair of Aztecs or whatever the shoes. <clears throat> and we used to get four or five runners at the Brussels Marathon, the New York Marathon. You name these, and they were on television. This was a big <laughs> thing. On the, television used to follow the leaders. <clears throat> and we had Reebok Racing Club 
at the front of so many of these marathons. But, you know, it was, it was obvious. And this big Reebok across here, all in the same kit. And, it, and that was fantastic. And we got an awful lot of publicity from that. And really, you know, so it is, it is sort of looking for the best way you can influence people. Yeah. And certainly it was nothing new. My grandfather knew it back down in 1895. Uh, he knew it then. But it was nothing new. I had a friend who decided that he didn't want to do that method. What he would do is value for money. And uh, they had a campaign on value for money. What did he get? No one. Hmm. No one wanted value for money. They all, they all wanted that association with a winning product. Yeah. And, and, and that is it. And it's still there today. Uh, and now we talk about influencing and influencers. Now influencing, being an influencer is a business. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's a business. Reebok yeah. are using Cardi B now. Cardi B, yeah, she has five, six, seven million followers. Yeah, it's like, okay, Instagram. Yeah. This is coming up all the time. It's the same, it's the same story. Okay. What does she do? Well, she's, she's, she's more or less a, a funny shape. <laughs> she, you know, she has that shape that, okay, and people follow. Mm. So they buy the product. And this is, this is the thing, it's, which is the best way. And I'm sure there's a number of new ways coming up and there will always be something new. So, uh, you know, it's influencers, yes. And it, it's not new thinking. It's, or it's, it's not a new idea, but new thinking on the best way to do it. Definitely. Yeah. Find out. Yeah, and you're right. And I think you know, the influence is, is a business in itself, but I think the ability to tag onto an influencer is also a business opportunity for us and mm -hmm. any organisation as well. Um, Joe, listen, I'm, I'm very conscious of the time. It's, I've taken up an hour of your time and, and I really, I think you know I can listen to you for absolutely days and uh, I'm very, very happy to do, to, to do so as well. Um, but I just want to say a huge, huge thank you very much indeed for, for spending an hour with us today and sharing some of your ideas and your stories. Thank you for writing the book. It's been an amazing read for me and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I picked up loads and loads of great ideas that I can take back into our business as well. Um, and thank you for what you've done with Reebok because it's a great brand that, you know, I grew up with it and, you know, my kids talk about it mm -hmm. and that type of stuff. And, and you've planted a lot of seeds in, in not only on the sports field, but also on the streets of New York and the streets of where I live and just about everywhere else as well. Well, there's changes coming up. I mean, it's uh, well bought by Adidas. Adidas are now selling the brand. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, there could be some exciting times up front. And I hope Shoemaker is helping to sort of rekindle the brand in a lot of people's minds. So, yes. Thank you, James. It's been great. Really appreciate it, Joe. Thank you very much. And, and big love to you and Julie. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you.